remain standing for our epistle lesson and sermon text from Romans 3. And I'm going to back up to verse 21 and read verses 21 to 26. Hear God's word. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, to which the law and the prophets bear witness. That is, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all and on all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are declared righteous by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God publicly set forth. He publicly set forth Christ as a propitiation in his blood. Through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time that he might be righteous even while declaring righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for this word, this gospel truth. We thank you for the propitiation that is in the blood of Jesus, which is at the center of our salvation. We thank you that you sent him from heaven to earth so that he could publicly be set forth as our atonement. Not like the atonement that was hidden behind the veil, but publicly set forth as a propitiation. Oh God, as we meditate on this deep and high truth, we pray that you would expand our hearts and our minds, that we would grow in gratitude, that we would grow in faith, that we would grow in understanding, that we would grow in our knowledge of God, our knowledge of you, that we would grow in our knowledge of our sin, in our knowledge of our great redemption, in our knowledge of that propitiation that happened at the cross. We ask for these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Please be seated. Today we come to the end of our deep dive into these six verses, verses 21 to 26. And Paul is dense here, so the sermon is going to be theological. It's going to be dense. I want you to hang on, though. There's payoff in thinking about these things and disciplining your mind and your heart to stick with Paul's logic. Because we really have come to the, to the tip of the mountain, the top of Mount Everest. Now, in most of Romans 2 and 3, Paul has been defending God's righteousness in condemning sinners. God is 
just when he damns the ungodly. He shows himself to be a righteous judge when he pours out his anger and eternal wrath on the unrighteous. So we've seen that, but what about when God saves the unrighteous? What about when he saves them rather than damns them? What about when he stops short of giving sinners what they deserve and he gives them us instead what we do not deserve? Is he still righteous then? Is he a good judge then? That's the question that Paul answers in chapter 3 verses 25 and 26 especially when he talks about propitiation. Abraham said it best in Genesis 18 that we just read when he was negotiating with God about Sodom and Gomorrah. As the judge of the whole earth, surely you will do what is right. Yes, God will always do the right thing. And yet, how can God be righteous if he declares, if he declares unrighteous sinners to be righteous? Psalm 103, verse 10 says, God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Well, that, that's, that sounds like wonderful news, right? But if God lets me off the hook for all the egregious sins that I've committed, how can he be considered a good and righteous judge of all the earth? I need to know that. You need to know that. Paul needed to know how that works. Good judges do deal with people according to their sins. They do repay criminals according to their iniquities. So what gives? In these first three chapters of Romans, Paul has introduced us to both sides of God's righteousness. On the one side is the saving righteousness of God, and on the other side is the judging righteousness of God. And if you look in your handout at the, at the preceding passages and then and and some of my subheadings there you can see that this the saving righteousness of God is his commitment to save sinners from their sins the judging righteousness of God is his commitment to punish sinners according to their sins well can God do both can he maintain both sides of his righteousness God seems to be in a dilemma. If he doesn't save sinners, he, he appears to be unrighteous because he's promised to save some sinners. But if he does save sinners, he once again appears to be unrighteous because he's not giving sinners what they deserve, what their sins earned them, their due wages. And so is there a way through? Can God save sinners? Can he declare unrighteous people to be righteous without compromising his righteousness? You see the dilemma. You see the question. And Paul's answer to that question is yes, he can. Both the saving righteousness and the judging righteousness of God manifest themselves in the cross of Christ. We see both of them there in that event. In, in the death of Christ, Jesus, God exercises his saving righteousness and his judging righteousness at the same time, in the same event. In Christ's blood, the demands of God's judging righteousness are met. And simultaneously, the promises of God's saving righteousness 
are fulfilled. Let me say that again. The, in, in the blood, in the death of Christ, the demands of God's judging righteousness are met. And simultaneously, the promises of God's saving righteousness are fulfilled. The cross is God's righteousness on display for the world to see in all of its beauty, wisdom, richness, and glory. The, if you want to know who God is? Look at the cross. It tells you about everything right there in one event. The cross is where God vindicates both sides of his one righteousness. You see, here's the problem. Paul states that God had been passing over sins for thousands of years. He had been exercising his saving righteousness ever since he decided not to treat Adam and Eve as their sins deserved. But his judging righteousness had been put on the, ba on the back burner. And he couldn't do that forever. If God didn't do something to demonstrate that he is a just judge, then both his saving righteousness and his judging righteousness would be called into question. They would be without foundation. He had to validate his saving righteousness by making good on his judging righteousness. And he accomplished this in the death of his son. When the time was right, God sent his son to a Roman cross. As Jesus was being nailed to that cross, God was nailing the sins of his people to the same cross. And there, at that cross, God satisfied the demands of his judging righteousness by pouring out all of his anger and wrath against sin, the sins of his people, on to Jesus. God took it upon himself to satisfy his own wrath, okay? Now, we've been walking through Romans 3, 21 to 26 very slowly because it's an important, it's, it's the high point of the Bible, and that's why I asked you to, to memorize it. And, and you saw me, I, I stumbled. I've, I've memorized it when you do it in front of people. It's harder, so that means it's not deep enough. But you need to memorize this passage because it is the climax of the story of redemption. And we shouldn't just rush through it. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones called this passage the Acropolis of the Bible. And Acropolis is, is the highest point of a city. And this paragraph is the highest point of Scripture because here Paul explains to us how both the saving righteousness and the judging righteousness of God are upheld in Christ. In your outline, you can see where we've been the last three or four weeks. In verse 21 and 22, God's saving righteousness is revealed. And it's revealed apart from the law in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Verse 23 reveals that God, God's saving righteousness is needed. It's needed. It, it, it's required for us to be saved because every descendant of Adam is a sinner who falls short of God's glory. We lack glory and righteousness. 
In verse 24, God's saving righteousness is given. It's a gift to sinners through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And now verses 25 and 26 unpack this redemption. That's why I'm I'm including really verse 24 here because verses 25 and 26 from one angle are an unpacking of that redemption that Paul talks about right at the end of 24. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then and then Verse 25 starts, whom God publicly set forth as a propitiation in his blood. The redemption that Paul refers to in verse 24 is also through the blood of Jesus. He doesn't make that explicit here. He ties the blood of Jesus here to the word propitiation, okay? But in Ephesians 1, 7, he says that in Christ we have redemption, same word, through his blood. So there he ties it explicitly, the blood, to redemption. The, Paul grounds redemption in Christ's blood. And so now in Romans 3.25, he says that propitiation is also in his blood. The, the blood of Christ is the bedrock of redemption and propitiation, which were really kind of two angles on the same reality, the same thing. In a minute, we're going to talk about the differences. We're going to talk separately about each of those words and realities. Redemption in the blood and propitiation in the blood. And today's sermon will unfold those two subpoints under point four in your outline. And I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and just read these so that we can, you can see that these are important. But then I want you to then focus on the scripture and on the sermon. But first, we'll consider how Christ's redeeming and propitiating blood demonstrates God's righteousness by satisfying the demands of justice. I know that's a mouthful and a, and a brainful, but every word's important there. Christ's redeeming and propitiating blood demonstrates God's righteousness by satisfying the demands of justice. Second, we'll see how Christ's redeeming and propitiating blood establishes our righteousness also by satisfying the demands of righteousness. Paul's message, especially in verses 25 and 26, is that the blood of Christ demonstrates God's righteousness and establishes our righteousness. So before we talk about propitiation, let's back up to verse 24 and try to get our minds wrapped around again redemption. Now you may remember last week that redemption was, it it was a word used of slaves. To, To redeem a slave meant to purchase him from his owner and set him free. To free a slave, to redeem him, you had to pay a ransom. And when the ransom was paid in full, the slave was bought and paid for. He was a free man. And so redemption is the release from slavery, deliverance from bondage through the payment of a ransom. Now, can you think of an Old Testament example of redemption? The the classic one, the most important one. The greatest Old Testament illustration of how redemption works. What is it? Somebody, you can say it in one word. Exodus, I heard it. The Exodus. Okay, not the book of, well, you can say the book of Exodus, but I'm talking about the event of the Exodus as recorded in the book of Exodus. Israel was in bondage 
to Egypt. But the Bible tells us that their, their slavery was chiefly spiritual, not chiefly physical. They weren't primarily slaves to the Egyptians. No, their slavery at bottom was spiritual. They were slaves to sin and death. Leviticus 17 says that Israel had been offering sacrifices to the goat demons while they were in Egypt. Several centuries later, a prophet named Ezekiel described Israel's spiritual bondage in Egypt this way. This is from Ezekiel 20. This is God speaking. On that day I swore to them that I would bring them out of Egypt into a land I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most beautiful of all lands. And I said to them, each of you get rid of the vile images you have set before your eyes and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But... They rebelled against me and would not listen to me. They did not get rid of the vile images they had set their eyes on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. So I said I would pour out my wrath on them and spend my anger against them in Egypt. But for the sake of my name, I brought them out of Egypt. It's Ezekiel 20, 6-9. Now, in a study by Arthur Pink, titled The Spiritual Condition of the Israelites, Pink says that this passage from Ezekiel 20 tells us five things about the spiritual condition of Israel when God redeemed them. First, this passage tells us that Israel worshipped the idols of Egypt. Second, Pink says, it shows us how God expressed his deep disapproval of them. He, He reproved them. Third, it informs us that Israel did not listen to God's reproval, but instead they blatantly defied God. Fourth, it implies that the earlier plagues were also visitations of judgment upon the Hebrews, at least to some extent, as well as the Egyptians. And fifth, it shows that the Lord delivered Israel not because of any worthiness or fitness he found in them, but simply for his name's sake. So the, the physical slavery of Israel was a, was a symbol, an outward representation of their depraved and idolatrous spiritual state. The main story in the book of Exodus is not that the Israelites were captive to Egypt and then God rescued them from their physical slavery. The main story, to borrow Paul's language from 2 Timothy 2, is that the Israelites had fallen into the trap of the devil who had taken them captive to do his will, 2 Timothy 2.26. Of course, he's not talking about the Israelites there, but it applies. Israel's physical redemption from Egypt symbolized a deeper spiritual need and reality. The exodus was fundamentally Israel's release from their bondage to sin through the blood of the Passover lamb. To to be redeemed, every Israelite had to come under the blood. He had to come under the blood of the sacrificial lamb. They, they, they They had to put the blood, they had to sprinkle it or smear it on the doorpost of their house. When God saw the blood, his wrath against the idolatrous sinners who lived inside that house was satisfied. And he let them live. 
When God saw the blood, his anger was propitiated. It was turned aside. When God saw the blood, he passed over that house and passed over the sins committed in that house. That's how Israel was redeemed. The redemption was in the blood. Now, the book of Hebrews makes it it crystal clear, plainly says, that the blood of animals had no power in in themselves, in itself. The blood did not have power in itself of these animals to turn aside God's punishing wrath. When God looked at the bull, the blood of the bulls and the goats and the lambs and the birds, he was really looking ahead to the blood of Christ. Only the blood of Jesus is propitiatory. Only his blood can satisfy God's anger against sin. Only the blood of the eternal Lamb of God can turn God's wrath away, can remove God's wrath from idolatrous sinners like you and me. In verse 25, Paul says that God publicly set forth Christ as a propitiation in his blood through faith to demonstrate something, to demonstrate his righteousness, particularly his judging righteousness. That's why he had to do it, to demonstrate his righteousness. And why did, why did God's righteousness need to be demonstrated? I mean, what, 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 does, what does he need to prove? Well, it needed to be demonstrated because, Paul says, in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins previously committed. And there's a lot in that, that sentence, that verse, that we, that we need to examine. First, let's dig a little deeper into the word propitiation. The Greek word translated propitiation is used in the Greek Old Testament to refer to the mercy seat. In fact, uh, one or two English translations that I, that I came across in my study, one I think is an actual translation and one in a, in a good solid commentary that translates the text, uh, they, use, they translate it mercy seat. So the mercy seat in his blood. Christ is the mercy seat in his blood. And do you remember from your Old Testament readings where the mercy seat was? Do you remember what it, what it was? What's the, what, is, what is the mercy seat? It was that slab of, gold, of pure gold on top of the Ark of the Covenant. The mercy seat is where God's invisible throne was in the Holy of Holies. His glory rest, rested there. That's where he sat on top of the Ark, on top of the mercy seat. God had put his glory right smack dab in the middle of Israel, at the center of Israel. Because, you see, at the center of Israel was the tabernacle and eventually the the temple. And at the center of the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies, the innermost sanctuary. And at the center of the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. And on the mercy seat was the glory of Yahweh. That's a beautiful thing. That's a wonderful thing, right? Well, yes and no. It wasn't always good for Israel because of their sin. The glory of God is an awesome and terrible thing. And Israel was constantly falling short of that glory. They were constantly replaying 
Adam's sin in the garden where he fell short of God's glory, failed to be righteous before God. And because of this, because Israel, from the, from the high priest down to the very last Israelite, because they were constantly sinning and falling short of God's glory, according to Leviticus 16, once a year the high priest had to enter into the Holy of Holies, a perilous endeavor indeed, and while inside he had to sprinkle the blood of the bull on the mercy seat. And when God saw the blood on the mercy seat, right, in, you know, right, right there in his presence, he was appeased. His wrath was propitiated. His anger was turned away. His, his, his anger and wrath were satisfied, fulfilled. Because the blood was put on the mercy seat, the Jews used the term mercy seat generally to mean place of atonement. It's the place where God's wrath against his people is removed. And there, there's even a verb form of this word, all right, in the Greek, and, and we'll, we'll look at that maybe next week. So, you know, to be propitiated. So it's the place of atonement. So when Paul refers to Christ in verse 25 as the mercy seat, the mercy seat in his blood, the propitiation in his blood, Paul is inviting his readers to view the crucified Christ as the new covenant place of atonement, the place where God's wrath against his people is removed, satisfied, taken care of, appeased. We kind of have to use multiple words to get, get at all the angles on this. In the Old Covenant, the place of atonement was hidden from public view behind the veil. But the atoning sacrifice of the New Covenant, Paul says, has been publicly set forth. Verse 25 is critical. Publicly set forth. It says that God publicly set forth Christ as the propitiation in His blood. And so our crucified Lord is a public mercy seat. A public place of atonement. The, the gold standard commentary on Romans, it, it was written back in the 1970s by evangelical British scholar Charles Cranfield. And in his comments on these verses, Cranfield, Cranfield calls the doctrine of propitiation, quote, the innermost meaning of the cross, end quote. The innermost meaning of the cross. Underneath the doctrine of, of the declared righteousness of God on our behalf. Underneath that declaration of our righteousness before God, underneath our redemption from the punishment and the power of sin, underneath our adoption as sons, underneath the forgiveness of our sins, underneath our transfer from the kingdom of, of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, underneath every spiritual blessing that is in Christ, at at the very bottom, holding it all up, is the propitiation of God's wrath through the blood of Jesus, which was set forth publicly. The death of Christ, above all, satisfies, appeases, turns aside, removes, propitiates the wrath of God against every sinner that he determined to save before the world began. 
So the core meaning of the cross is propitiation. The heart and soul of the gospel is propitiation. Propitiation makes all the other downstream benefits of the cross possible. And the once for all sacrifice of Christ is better than the blood of all the lambs sacrificed at all the Passovers. Better than the blood of all the bulls sacrificed on all of the days of atonement put together. None of the Old Testament sacrifices could actually remove God's wrath. They only foreshadowed the wrath-removing sacrifice of Jesus. The animal sacrifices were spiritual IOUs. They were, they were placeholders pointing to something greater down the road. Every sin committed before the crucifixion of Jesus went unpunished, really. It, they went unpunished. God had to patiently pass over the sins committed in the Old Covenant because there was not yet true atonement for them. The reason God, though, could patiently wait, the reason he could patiently pass over the sins of his people is that he could see the future. He knew what was coming or who was coming. When God saw the blood of the animal sacrifices, he remembered that the true propitiatory sacrifice for sins was on its way. This means that those who look for righteousness in the past, in the law, in the old covenant, will be disappointed because the atonement provided in the law was not made to handle God's righteous wrath. It's not built for it. Old covenant, the old covenant atonement in itself can't satisfy God's wrath. If that's all we had, we would have nothing. The saving righteousness of God can't be obtained through the law. The only way to be right with God is, as Paul says, through faith in the Messiah. And I love how Paul just throws in through faith in the middle of verse 25. It, it kind of almost seems out of place. He's going along talking about redemption and propitiation in Christ's blood, and then it almost uh, seems... You know, ran, he randomly inserts through faith. You know, don't, don't forget. It's a reminder that we get the blood of Christ smeared on the doorpost of our hearts by putting our faith in Jesus. And, and Hebrews even uses that kind of imagery in Hebrews 10 where it says that the blood of the new covenant, the blood of Christ is sprinkled on our hearts. That's, that's Passover imagery. And so we get that blood, that propitiating blood, through faith, Paul says. And, the, and that's important. Let's talk about faith for a minute because Paul uses faith, you know, the, the, the verb or the noun form of faith, you know, have faith, believe through the, you know, the faith, I can't remember how many times now. It's upwards of 10, it seems like, in this whole passage going to the end of the chapter, like verse 21 to 31. The faith Paul's talking about isn't perfect faith. It, it, it isn't always strong faith. Sometimes it wavers and doubts and lacks confidence. But the good news, the wonderful news, is that you're not saved by the quality 
of your faith. You're not not saved by how good, how strong your faith is. Your, Your redemption depends not on the intensity of our faith, your faith, but on the object of your faith. Remember that. Even if, you, even if you just stick that little phrase in your head, it, your salvation depends not on the intensity of your faith, but on the object of your faith, which, who is Jesus. Last week, Aiden sent me, sent me a little a, a short clip of a sermon by Don Carson that illustrates this point well. I'm going to summarize it for you. Carson tells the story of two Hebrews, two Israelites in Egypt, talking to each other only hours before the first Passover. The very first Passover. And we'll call these two Hebrews Asher and Baruch. Carson humorously calls them Smith and Brown, but we'll give them authentic names. Now, at one point in the conversation, Asher says to Baruch, say, aren't you, aren't you a little nervous about what's coming, about what's going to happen later tonight, you know, with, with the angel of death and all that? And Baruch responds, well, Asher, God, God's made promises to us. God's told us what's going to happen and, and what to do through his servant Moses. There's no need to be nervous. Haven't you slaughtered the lamb and ha- haven't you smeared the blood on the doorpost and, and, and the lintel of your house? Are, are you, aren't you packed and ready to go? Are, aren't you and your, your wife and your kids ready to, to sit down and, and do the whole thing, eat the whole thing tonight, have the whole meal? And Asher nods and says, well, of course, I've, I've done all of that. I'm not stupid. Uh, but, but it's still scary. When you think about the threat of the firstborn son in each household being killed. And, you know, and unlike you, I've only got one son. And I can't bear the thought of losing him. I, I love my little Benjamin. And all I can think about is that angel of death passing through. Now, I know what God said. Uh, you know, I, I know what Moses said. And, I, and I've obviously smeared the blood. And I even went back and made, made sure that it was real thick so the angel could see it. But, but still, it's pretty scary. It's, it's hard not to ask the what if questions. What, what if I'm missing something? All I know is that I'm just going to be glad when this night's over. And Baruch responds confidently, bring it on. I trust in the promises of God. I stand on the promises. I believe the promises. They're true. I know it. I believe it. Okay, so later that night, the angel of death swept through the land, right? Which of these two men lost his son, lost his firstborn son? That's right, I saw the right answer over here in the form of zero. Neither, neither, 
neither man lost his son because death didn't pass over on the basis of the intensity or quality of their faith. It passed over solely on the basis of the blood of the lamb. The the person whose faith can move mountains is no more saved, no more redeemed, no more right with God than the person whose faith is smaller. We'll just call it smaller. And you know what I mean. The faith that saves is not always impressive faith. Now, we're, we're going to see later in Romans that this, the faith that saves is obedient faith. It's living faith. It's repentant faith. All of that's true. When God saves, he works sanctification and fruit and good works and obedience and all of that. But still, the faith that saves, is, it's not always impressive. It doesn't always look good from the outside. It has its moments. It might waver and weaken at times, at many times, but it always clings to Christ and his cross. It always rests in the blood of Christ, the blood of the Lamb. It always rests in the blood of the Lamb. And so you're not saved by the intensity or clarity or quality of your faith. You're saved by the object of your faith. That's what, that's who saves you. It's the object of your faith who is the crucified and resurrected Son of God who never wavers, whose blood is never weak. Verse 26 says that God publicly set forth Christ as a propitiation in his blood to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. At the present time. Why? So that he might be righteous even while declaring righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. He couldn't just keep passing over sins without paying the due wages of sins. He couldn't, put it, he couldn't put it off forever, satisfying his anger and wrath. And the final clause of our passage at the end of verse 26 tells us what God desired. It, tell, what, it tells us what his, where his heart was and is. He wanted to be righteous and he wanted to declare sinners to be righteous. He wanted both. Now, you know, the, the skeptic might, might say, well, he, so he wanted, his, he wanted to have his cake and eat it too. Well, he, he wanted to declare sinners righteous without compromising his own righteousness. Oh, that's impossible. Well, how did he do it? He did it by satisfying the demands of, uh, of justice himself. The, justice has demands, and they had to be satisfied, and so he did it himself. At the cross, the judge received the judgment And you could say we received it too in Christ. But he shouldered it for us. God loved the objects of his wrath so much that he became the object of his wrath in our place. He loved the objects of his wrath so much that he became the object of his wrath for us. So he didn't save us by becoming indifferent to our our sin. 
No, he judged every one of our sins in the person of Christ. Tim Keller writes, God does not set his justice aside. He turns it on himself. The cross does not represent a compromise between God's wrath and his love. It does not satisfy each halfway. Rather, it satisfies each fully. And in the very same action, on the cross, the wrath and love of God were both vindicated, both demonstrated, and both expressed perfectly. They both shine out and are utterly fulfilled. The cross is a demonstration both of God's justice and of his justifying love. End quote. One of my favorite lines of poetry comes from the hymn, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted, which says in one verse, many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. Okay, capital J, justice, the stroke that God. So the stroke of justice was the stroke of God. And it was the deepest, most bitter stroke of all, by far, without comparison. The stroke of justice paid for your sins. It purchased your redemption. It satisfied God's wrath for you. Your sins were so bad that the sinless son of God had to die for them. That was the only way to take care of it. And yet, your sins were no match for the grace of God in the propitiatory blood of Christ, his son. Do you believe that? Can you believe it? It's hard to believe. It's so wonderful. In closing, I want us to think about the God, I want you to think about the God who lives in your mind. The God who lives in your head, okay? We're constantly having to reform, you know, the the God that we've created in our minds so that it matches Scripture, I want you to examine how you relate to him, to the God that you have in your head. And, and then I want you to consider whether the God you imagine, the God that you imagine yourself serving, is the God of the Bible. Is the God that you have in your head the God of both sacrificial love and holy anger? Is he both? Is he both a saving God and a judging God. If not, then your life will be given to distortions, imbalances, and malfunctions. If the God in your head is a God of love who doesn't take sin seriously, then you think of God as an you know, as an overly permissive parent who makes no requirements, enforces no rules, and issues no punishments. The result is an indifferent God who doesn't really care about anything if you take it to its logical conclusion. He doesn't even care about his own standards. So how could he really care about me? A child raised by this kind of a father doesn't feel love. Uh, the father might convince himself that he's loving, right? But uh, 
the child doesn't feel loved by this kind of non-discipling, non-parenting. In fact, he feels orphaned, abandoned. Children need and deep down want rules, structures, boundaries, and consequences. A society doesn't prosper when its judges fail to judge. Rather, it's destroyed. On the other hand, if the God in your head is a God of wrath who is stingy with His grace, then you think of God as a schoolmarm or a taskmaster who marks your iniquities, treats you as your, sins deser- as your sin deserves, and repays you according to your iniquities. And He just can't wait to do it. it. The result there is an overbearing God who is always frowning at you. A child raised by this kind of a father also doesn't feel loved. He feels criticized and he's not motivated at the heart level to please his father. It just doesn't work that way. A child, a child raised by this kind of father will feel angry, defiant, and crushed by the weight of disapproval. If you imagine that God prioritizes rules over relationship, you might be a driven person, but you won't likely be a loving person, person or a restful person or a joyful, happy person. What you think about God is the most important thing you will ever think about. What you think about God is the most important thing you'll ever think about. Your view of God is the most important view in your entire theological system. The question, who is God, is the most important question you will ever answer. And everybody, everybody has an answer. Even if they say there is no God, that's, that's part of their answer. And that question, who is God, where, where is it answered for us? At the cross. That's the, ans- that's the answer to the question, the cross. The only correct view of God is the one that's looking up from the foot of the cross. You're not thinking about God properly unless you're thinking about Him as the one who went to the cross for you. The cross enables you to avoid both of those ditches, both distortions of God's identity. The stroke of justice that pierced Jesus satisfied both the saving love of God and the judging anger of God. The cross demonstrates that God is the righteous judge who loves his law and punishes every single violation of it. He's the righteous judge who loves his law and punishes every violation of it. And it simultaneously demonstrates that God does not delight in the death of the wicked, but rather delights in declaring sinners righteous as they put their faith in Jesus. If your faith is in Jesus, then you are bought and paid for. Paid for in full. 
there, there's nothing left for you to pay. It wasn't a, it wasn't a down payment, and then you got to do the rest. It was fully paid for. Not one cent is left to be paid. You can't make yourself any more or any less a child of God than you are right now through faith in Jesus. You can't contribute to your redemption. Nor can anyone or anything take it away from you as long as you are trusting in Jesus. As long as you are at the foot of the cross looking to Jesus who is the author and finisher of your faith. At the end of Romans 8, Paul writes this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things with him? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who declares righteous. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and rose again for me. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for this great salvation that we have considered today, that you have revealed to us, that you have made manifest to us in Christ. Oh God, help us to cling to it with more tenacity, with greater faith. Help us to rest in your promises, to lean back into your love, your grace, your redemption, and to not get ahead of you, but to stand on your promises, to receive them and to rest in them, knowing that Jesus paid the full price for our redemption. He fully propitiated your wrath. Oh God, drill this down into our hearts. Cause us to believe it and to live it out. Cause it to transform our hearts and our minds. Cause it to, to motivate us to godliness, to genuine repentance, to fruitful Christian living. We ask for these things for Christ's sake and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.